to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm speaking today with Frank Ledwidge, the senior lecturer in law and strategy at the University of Portsmouth. Frank is also a former military intelligence officer and served in the Balkans, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Frank focuses in his work on military capability and strategy, with a particular focus on the role of air power. Frank has an excellent book on air power in wars throughout the 20th century called Aerial Warfare, The Battle for the Skies. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Great to be here. First, for some context, can you outline for listeners the key functions of air power? Yes, of course. And it's surprising how many military thinkers and leaders now don't don't know this. I was talking to a friend of mine who's writing a book on land warfare, and he simply didn't know the breadth of options that air power offer. I mean, he knew what aircraft do, but hadn't conceptualized it. So we divide the roles of air power up into four. So the first is control of the air. So what that does is, is allow you the freedom to use the air above us as you like. And in warfare, the most immediately obvious thing you can do using that freedom is the role of attack, which is applying explosives usually or guns to the ground and attacking your, your opponent. But in order to find your target, you must understand where it is, what defences it has, what, what it's about, essentially why you're attacking it as well, and that's intelligence. So that's the third role. So control of the air, attack, and now we have intelligence, surveillance, and target acquisition and reconnaissance. And finally, and really important these days, is mobility. And that's using aircraft to get where you need to go. Although the material and machines doing this stuff has changed, but essentially those four roles of control of the air, attack, reconnaissance, and mobility have been unchanged since since the First World War. Mm -hmm. How would you evaluate the use of air power in the war in Ukraine so far. On the one hand, Ukrainians seem to be quite effective with these more agile technologies such as using drones, etc. But on the other hand, Russia has still managed to carry out a pretty brutal bombing campaign across much of Ukraine. So how are you looking at and observing that? Well, that's a huge question. It is uh, big. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'll give it a go. So the first days of... The campaign. I think a lot of us thought, and we thought what the Russians would do was to annihilate the Ukrainian air force. That's certainly what we'd have done. We being the West, uh, that would have been our doctrine, and and take apart their air defence system. And the Russians didn't do that. They left Ukraine challenging for the sky, so they didn't have control of the air. The Russians and still don't now. It's astonishing there are any Ukrainian aircraft flying at all. Mm-hmm. But there are the Ukrainians sustain their challenge largely through the use of ground-to-air missiles. And that brings me to a historical point, actually. I mean, my book comes up to today, essentially, but most of it's to do with the 20th century. And since 1945, about 95% of aircraft that have been shot down, including helicopters, have been shot down from the ground. Very, very few fighter-to-fighter actions. That does not mean, by the way, that the fighter is obsolete, but that's the fact. 95% of aviation has been shot down, has been shot down from the ground. Now, when was the last time a Royal Air Force fighter shot down an enemy aircraft was in 1948? 
or 47. So all of the aircraft, or almost all aircraft nowadays, are shot down from the ground. And that's the case in Ukraine as well. So the Ukrainians have challenged for control of the air using their missile systems, which are quite old, actually. And most people are quite surprised how they've managed to do that. But also using that ability to challenge for the air, that denies to some extent the other advantage that Russia has, which is in artillery. So we've all seen artillery craters blanketing fields. That's a waste of ammunition. So the way you use artillery today is through precision. And precision is exercised through the use of I-STAR, intelligence surveillance, target acquisition, reconnaissance, and modern artillery applies its effect through precision. Precision comes from knowing where your enemy is, identifying that, and you've all seen the Bayraktars. That's, a, that's an attack and surveillance aircraft using that precision to kill Russian assets of one kind or another. So you've got the Ukrainians sustaining a challenge for the air, using their ability to some extent, that control of the air that they can challenge for to apply I-STAR surveillance assets and leveraging that into artillery. And they're doing that very well as well. The Ukraine is combining these, these assets. And that's, that's the essence of air. It can't work on its own. So first, use of missiles, mm-hmm. really, really bringing to the fore that necessity to have excellent missile systems, which both sides have, and how you use it, because they're wound into radar systems, also essential. That's part of that surveillance piece. They exercise air power just as much as anyone else. And they're absolutely vital, because they are the surveillance function for the missiles. Mm-hmm. And so why in Ukraine... Why wasn't Russia more effective at gaining control over the airspace? Particularly, I'm thinking in those early days where we did see Russia failing to sort of meet expectations in terms of their military performance on many fronts. But it seems that this is also one of them where they didn't actually manage to gain full control of the skies. Why was that? Like, you'd think that would be an obvious first move if they were trying in the beginning to gain full control of the Ukrainian territory? Right. Well, no, literally nobody knows that except the Russians. We've all been at a loss to, to try to understand why, you know, that very basic lesson wasn't learned by the Russians. We could go into history to give examples of why it's a good idea to learn that lessons, whether that be the Second World War or the various wars fought by the Israelis or ourselves against the Iraqis or whatever, but nobody knows. I suspect like many others, that the planning assumptions played a part in this. The planning assumptions are very clear now were that there'd be a three-day combat phase because the Ukrainian armed forces would collapse, being utterly ramshackle and bereft of leadership or motivation or equipment. That's poor intelligence for a start. And that the initial phase was very poorly controlled and commanded. So there would seem to have been four or five separate operations commanded by four or five separate individuals, each of which was competing for the various resources required. Also, let's say, and let's not diminish this, that there was an effort made by the Russians to knock out Ukrainian air bases and some installations. But it's very clear, I think, they had warning from not only their own radar systems, but the various NATO, US and also other countries, Sweden, for example, is involved. Mm-hmm. And I understand anecdotally that there were some, some pretty close escapes by Ukrainian air assets and, and radar assets because they're all equally important. They moved them pretty quickly when they got that warning. They wouldn't have got much warning, but they got some. So those three explanations. One, it's incredible and should have been done, and nobody knows why. Two, a fragmentation of command. And three, excellent Ukrainian radar coordination and integration with Western help. Mm-hmm. So it's possible they simply just didn't succeed in that objective. Yeah, but I think, you know, we took us the West in 1991, 100 days to, to be sure that Iraq in 1991 was disarmed of its air force and 
effective armed forces. And coming back again to that point you mentioned of the importance of having intelligence, understanding where assets are located. Yeah, exactly. And that intelligence function also lies on the ground, you know, with understanding your enemy. Mm-hmm. That's certainly been interesting to observe as we've been looking at the conflict in Ukraine unfolding, that there has been a lot of use of drones and this movement towards more agile, defensive types of military equipment, which can be operated by, I mean, from what I've heard, can be operated by people with very little training and experience as well. Absolutely. And we see that in Ukraine now. So mm-hmm. it's, I suppose there's a temptation to think of air power as rather arrogant pilots strutting around like Tom Cruise in their tight uniforms. Most people involved in air power aviators have not nothing to do with them. Uh, and indeed, air power isn't necessarily even wielded now by even predominantly by air forces. Let's take Ukraine, for example. Mm-hmm. So there, air power is wielded from the lower level by loitering drones, which will attack attack certain targets, by even commercial drones, which will sit above an enemy, largely unseen because they're too small, and guide artillery in. The first attack by enemy, successful attack from the air by an enemy since 1952 on US soldiers was carried out by ISIS fighters using a commercial drone, which dropped some grenades on some American Special Forces troops and injured one of them. And that was in 2016, I think, to the extent that that represents a loss. It was a loss imposed on them by a guy with a drone that you could buy down in the, in the, local, in the local store, which is exactly what they did. So it's no longer just manned aircraft. It's no longer all these uh, aviators or big bombers or what have you. It's very much moving into another uh, another kind of thinking now, but it's still air power. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's quite interesting that you have done so much research on the way in which air power has been used in wars throughout the 20th century. Looking at this war now in Ukraine, do you see anything sort of fundamentally different in trends in sort of aerial warfare, or are you seeing pretty much more of the same, maybe with a little bit more technological capability as technology changes and advances along a sort of natural trajectory? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the answer is that, you know, it's a it's a point on a continuum. And we saw that continuum, frankly, since 1794, when the French applied the first balloons to surveillance all the way through to today. But the means of it obviously changes. And so what we're seeing now is a growing trajectory of the unmanned aircraft, particularly effectively the Nagorno-Bach fight in 2020 where the Azeris, they did have manned aircraft, which they used, but essentially the campaign was carried out by armed Turkish supplied drones and various other Israeli, Azeri, Turkish uh, surveillance drones guiding not only bombs, but also artillery as well. So that was in Nagorno-Karabakh 2020. This is an advance on that. So we're seeing this increasing dominance of unmanned aircraft. But, you know, that doesn't mean that manned aircraft are obsolete. My view is that by 2040, manned aircraft will be pretty rare. Some people struggle to see any f- f- function after 2030 for the person in the cockpit. I mean, I was talking to a guy, a Royal Air Force engineer, and we were sitting next to um, a simulator for an F-35. He said, you know, you can fly the F-35 from the ground. Uh, I, I was really struck by that. I think that's where we'll be in the 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. where aircraft such as the F-35 and, and the next generation, the sixth and seventh generations, can have someone in it or someone flying it from the ground. Mm -hmm. You see that trajectory continuing in Ukraine. Um, Only today, the Americans, the deal was announced that they were going to sell four Great Eagle 
drones to the Ukraine. So really capable, high-end stuff to provide the Ukraine with a very, very capable long-range strike, strike function, much more capable than the Bayraktars you may have heard about, which the mm. Turkish drones have been using. Thank you very much. Very fascinating to me is it's something that I really don't know much about and I'm not at all an expert in. Well, th thanks very much, Jessica. It's a real pleasure to do this at any time. But by the way, one thing, Jessica, the Flinders, I suppose that's named after Matthew Flinders. Indeed. Um, yeah. So I lived in a town called Spalding. Matthew Flinders came from Donington, which is about three miles away, which was just a little sort of coincidence, but I was just reflecting on that. Yep. Middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, he's quite a figure here. You've been listening to the update from Key Podcast. Thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. See you next episode.